0: All right, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, if you uh, got a Bible with you. If not, you still have a Bible with you because there should be one in front of you uh, in the chair rack below. And, uh, you know, here at at Fellowship, if this is your first or second time with us, you may be aware of this, you may not. But we really try to go through the Bible I know it's a real novel idea, but uh, whenever uh, we we receive the preaching of the Word, we really try to stick to the script, which is God's Word. And so I find that the best method to do that, just personally, is to go through books of the Bible. Uh, For the last eight weeks, we haven't done that. We've done a a topical series, which we'll do from time to time, but we'll be for the next uh, while right here in the book of Hebrews, and I am pumped about it. Uh, Very intimidated by it, uh, but very excited about it, too. So uh, I'm excited to be able to walk through this with you guys together. We'll be here for the next some time, and we'll see what you see behind me, just how great Jesus is. If you didn't notice, those first two songs we just sang were kind of in that realm, right? The greatness of Jesus. Uh, You know, I I really like uh, sushi. Uh, My wife and I love sushi, Brooke and I love sushi, and my favorite kind of sushi has uh, crab in it, the little sprinkled... um, crunchy stuff on top with some some spicy sauce or something. I get excited whenever I get to have that, and so my mouth's watering. I feel like I'm gonna spit. Clint just... Um, I love sushi, and, and my favorite is the part that has the crab in it, but I've never had sushi that has real crab in it. You've been to the beach, and you love to go to the beach and have real crab, get some crab legs and crack those things open, um, but around here, If you get crab here, uh, I wouldn't eat it because it's probably not trustworthy in these parts. Probably need to go to the beach for that. But there's something called imitation crab, right? Uh, My my mom sometimes, she'll buy some imitation crab dip. And guess what? It's actually really delicious. Imitation crab is still delicious to me. That's why I like it in my sushi. But the real thing is better. Uh, Here's the thing, though. It's it's easy to just pop open sort of a little... uh, container and take some crab dip. That's real easy, right? You just put it on a pita chip or something and eat it. It's a lot harder to take those claws. You feel like you're about to, you know, violate an animal that's dead right in front of you. you. Just get into that thing and smack that crab. You know, it's spraying juices all over the place. It's hard to get to that, and it's also not very rewarding uh, when it's just a little bit. So you have to really work for it. But also, it is really rewarding because of how wonderful it tastes. Listen, the book of John, which we just got done studying a few weeks ago, and the book of Hebrews, which we're looking at right now, are a lot like imitation crab and real crab. And I don't mean that John's message isn't wonderful. It's wonderful. What I mean is, it's easier for us to glean the beauty of the book of John. It's much harder and a lot more work to go to a book like the book of Hebrews and extract the goodness, but I would argue that church, what we're about to do is extremely rewarding to have the real thing. So, while this may be a task at times, this study will be built here for months, I believe that if we are dedicated to it, and extracting some of these biblical truths, man, God will do amazing things in your heart and the hearts of your family and in the hearts of those that you come into contact with if you let him. So, in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see some amazing things. You know, part of what makes this a complex book is the original language that it was written in, Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. John's Greek is very simple. It would be uh, elementary. It's very cut and dry. But the Hebrew uh, in—or the Greek in Hebrew, which is all kinds of a tongue tie, is different. It's very layered, and it's very poetic. And so it's sort of hard to pull from it. But that's not the only reason it's difficult. It's also difficult because— It requires, every week that we'll be here, it will require a lot of background information because context is everything. And this book is steeped in ancient Jewish tradition and history and culture. And because of that, because context is everything, this letter provides contextual difficulties. And here's a few reasons why. Number one, we don't even know who wrote it. (laughs) That's a hard place to start from. Knowing the heart of the person is incredibly difficult because we don't even know who they are. Not just that, but the audience of the book is extremely vague. We're not even sure where they live. Only vaguely know the situation of those receiving it. But what we can say confidently is that the author of Hebrews has an abundantly clear theme in mind, and that's that of all the great things, all the things that we, that they may hold dear, listen, Jesus is simply greater. That's the theme of the book. A lot of great things in the world, a lot of great people in the world, a lot of good things you can see in other parts of the Bible. There is simply no greater person, no greater theme to study than the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to add to that, that is as we're going to see in this book, is that life in Jesus is not restrictive, it's liberating. The life in Jesus is not restrictive, it's liberating. So as you walk through this book, we're going to see that, and uh, I'm excited about what God's going to do. So let's look together, okay? Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at the first three verses, and we'll bite off more in the weeks to come, but just by way of introduction, I don't want to bog down. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. Now, let me say this before we go. Sorry, one more thing. Your translation may read a lot different than mine. That's because Hebrews is complex. So the order of the words sometimes are shuffled around, but I'm going to read slowly. It's not a lot to read, and we'll try to pull some things from it, okay? It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom... He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we're going to stop right there. And I realize that's kind of an abrupt halt We'll look at why that is next week as I said, the author is unknown. Uh, the, the way that the, the language is laid out, it, it's very clear that Paul did not write it. It reads nothing like the letters that Paul wrote, and there's other reasons for why it's really hard to say who else could have written this. We know, though, that this is someone that has written this, is immersed in Judaism, uh, what it means to be a Jewish person. It's, it's called Hebrews. He's writing to a Hebrew audience, likely Christians. That's why we see a lot of Christian themes series. writing to believers of, of the Jewish community who had converted, and so those that were steeped in their Old Testament Jewish tradition, had come to faith in Jesus, these are the people who are receiving this letter. And you're going to see a lot of evidences of that as we go in the weeks to come. We see in this book a lot of frequent quoting of the uh, Septuagint, which is just a, a fancy way of saying it's the Greek Bible of the Hebrew Old Testament. So there's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and there's a whole lot of quoting here, not of the Hebrew Bible, but in this book a lot of quoting of the Greek Bible, which means put two and two together, you have a Jewish conversion audience that lives in Greek areas, lives in Gentile areas. And so we can sort of accurately say, go throw that map up there if you you got it, Greg, I didn't confirm that with you there. Okay, so there we go. All these little dots are churches. And so the ones that you see down in the bottom right-hand corner, you may be able to read Jerusalem up there. Those would be the churches in a Jewish context. But all the other ones, the red ones, by the way, are the ones of the churches of the book of Revelation, those seven churches. But all those other churches, whether it be way up there in the northwest in Italy, or maybe closer to where Thessalonica and Philippi are in Macedonia, up top in the north, or Alexandria and Cyrene down there in the south on the continent of Africa. What can be said is all these other areas were reached by Gentile people. They were reached by Greek speakers. And so we can accurately say that the audience of the book of Hebrews is not the people in the southeast down there in the little area that would speak Aramaic in what we even know as Israel. No, the audience would be Greek-speaking Gentiles in the other areas. They would be behind enemy lines, Christians in a very non-Christian world. And for us, that should have some relevancy. So we're not so different, you and I, basically, is what we're going to see in this audience. You can take that map down now. The Jews and the Hebrews, oh, which would be the same, they traditionally held in high regard angels and prophets and Moses and the law and the priesthood and the sacrificial system of worship. And what we're going to see as we go through this book is that he's going to bring all of those things into play, again, speaking to a Jewish audience in a Gentile world, and say, as great as all those things are, the prophets, Moses, the, the law, the priesthood, all those things, they're great, God gave them to us, but Jesus is greater. That's the message, Okay. The words better or more or greater appear 25 times in this letter greater more better he is better he's he's greater 25 times and so the preaching strategy of this letter is to say that jesus is greater and i say the preaching strategy because this book of hebrews is not really much of a book and honestly i would say it's not even much of a letter it's really considered by most to be a sermon or a series of sermons. There's a lot of quoting of the Old Testament here. He uses it as a call to response. He gives warnings. It reads like a sermon. And so we're going to call it a letter, but really I want you to see that this is a sermonic letter where he's trying to call his audience to respond by diving quickly and deeply into the word of the Old Testament scriptures, which we'll get into next week. But this week we're going to see the introduction of the book's main themes. And I would argue that those main themes are found in the first three verses and are summarized by three simple words or roles of Jesus. And those words are prophet, king, and priest. And you may hear those in succession as prophet, priest, and king. Either way, but in the order of our text, we're going to see prophet, king, and priest priest. And for the Hebrews, each of these words carried immense weight, historically and redemptively. When you go and look at their Bible, the Old Testament, those three words, prophet, king, and priest, they have a lot of relevancy. They had a lot of prophets, messengers, but all those prophets brought a word, but the deliverance that they would seek would never last. They had kings, but the kings that they were given were either completely wicked or righteous but they didn't last and their reign didn't last they had lots and lots of priests that brought atonement and brought a sacrificial system that was supposed to appease God but none of them lasted and none of those uh, appeasements were eternal in steps Jesus, the greater, who is the greatest messenger of God because he is the mouthpiece of God and the mouth of God, who is the greatest king because he's the king of kings whose reign is eternal. And he's the ultimate high priest whose sacrifice reigns forever. So those three terms are going to sort of be the, the bank that guides the stream of thought in this sermon or letter. For us, they'll be the words that we use to introduce our time in this book for the next few months. And so the first one, and it's going to be the structure of our outline if you're taking notes this morning, the first one is that Jesus is greater as a prophet. He's greater as a prophet. He's greater than all other voices. He's greater than all other voices. I think this is the first thing that the author of Hebrews is getting at, which is what we see. It's appropriate that this brief introduction begins by looking back, which you'll see in the first few words there of verse 1. It looks back, comparing the back then with the here and now, because this is literally the method of the entire sermon, the entire letter. And so he begins that God could not be known specifically if he had not made himself known. And he did that through the prophets, but also through his son, which is what it says in verse 1. Look at it. It says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Well, pause right there. God making himself known by speaking was really no new thing. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying, is that it's not a new thing that God would make himself known. He's been doing that for a long time. He says in verse uh, 1, the very first terms in the ESV are long ago. The word there is uh, palai, which is where we get, it's, it's P-A-L-A-I is our way that we would see it. It's where we get the word for uh, paleontology, which is the study of dinosaurs and fossils. It means the study of what existed way, 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 way back then. And that word for long ago is the word for way, 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 way back then, okay? What the author of Hebrews is saying is God's been speaking way, way, way back then. For a very long time, God has been speaking long ago, dating all the way back while in English, the first word is long ago, in the original language, that's not the first word. The first words of this sentence are two words, and they are, it's, it's and, it was just three, three words, one word, and, and then this word, and they both start with a, a common prefix in our language, and that's the prefix poly. You guys know the prefix poly, P-O-L-Y. It means many, and that can be uh, polygon, which is a a shape with many sides, or polyamorous, which means love of of many things or people, or Polynesian, which is many, many good sauces, right? (laughs) If you don't go to Chick-fil-A, then just repent. That prefix means many, and so what the author of Hebrews is saying is, many times, in many ways, poly and poly. It's sort of a poetic beginning of saying many times, many ways, God spoke. He spoke through the prophets. Now, when you read the word prophet, you may think of like a fortune teller. That's not at all what the Old Testament role of the prophets was. The prophets were not future predictors. They were mouthpieces of God. And so God gave them a word and said, go speak my word. Go and speak my word to my people. And so what this is saying is that God spoke in many methods, and in many messengers, and in many times. Remember, he's writing to the Hebrews, a Jewish people that would know of a lot of those times that God had spoken. God spoke through biblical authors. We have the law and the prophets, the wisdom literature. God spoke through many biblical authors. He spoke through, their, or he spoke through dreams. He spoke through visions. He spoke through a burning bush. He spoke through a thunderous cloud. Goodness, he spoke through a donkey. In many ways... At many times, God has spoken, but the contrast is that that was back then, this is now. All of those many messengers and many messages were great, but this messenger is his son, and this message is eternal salvation. Look to the greater. God could not be known specifically salvifically in a way that saves he could not be known in that way if he had not made himself known and the best way to know god is to look to the son the son of god which is what he's saying here and the author does not intend to say that the old testament or what god said in the past is not good god said it of course it's good he means to remind these believers that what god has said to us in jesus in christ is the most important thing that he could possibly tell us it's greater Jesus said many things. In fact, we looked at John, which said that there's not enough time to talk about all the things. There's not enough pages in the world to fill of the things that Jesus said. But here's a few. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this last little part. On these two commandments depend all, the law and the prophets. That's Jesus' way of saying this is the greater message. John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Matthew 20 verse 28 says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said a lot of great things, did he not? Luke 19:10 For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. John 3:16 For God so loved the world. This is how much he loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Mark 2:17 When Jesus heard it he said to them these are the religious leaders who were like, "Eh, we don't need what you have to say." Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Guys, Jesus said a lot of good things. He's the greater messenger, the greatest voice. And there is much we can know of God from many places that we can look, but only by examining the Christ can we see the gift of eternal rescue through the exchange of eternal condemnation for eternal glory. You can see God in a flower. You can see God under a microscope. You can see God in a rainbow. You can see God in the exodus. You can see God in the fiery furnace. You can see God through his favor in your home, in your family, in your workplace. You can see God in his constant new morning mercies and his constant provision that he pours into your life. But listen, more important than them all is that every single day you consciously take time to turn your eyes to Jesus and remind yourself that apart from him, you could not know God as Savior and as Lord. There's a greater message And it's good to look around and see evidences of God all around and praise God for those evidences. But there is no greater place that you can look upon God himself than in the person and work of his son, Jesus. He's the greater messenger, and he brings the greater message. And guys, there are many voices in our world, and there, there are many voices in our Bibles, but there are also many voices in your home, many voices in your head. There are many voices in your workplace, many voices on social media, many voices in mainstream media. There are voices in the world, and some are helpful, many are harmful, and they call for your ear. Listen, give your heart ultimately and greatly to the voice of the Savior. His is the greatest voice. And as prophet, we see that his voice is greater than all other voices. The second is we see him as king. And I think the author of Hebrews intends for us to see this here and that he is greater than all other powers. He's greater than all other powers. Again, I'll just echo that God could not be known specifically in a way that saves if he had not made himself known. We're gonna see some more neat things here in verses two and three. Look down there. He goes on says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. But look what he says about his son. And he's, he's about to begin this, this string in the next uh, couple of verses of all these amazing things he's going to say about Jesus. He says, spoken to us by his son, listen, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Is there any way that you can say anything greater about Jesus? Well, he's about to put that to the test. He says, Whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created The world. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's something pretty great. Man, he's on a tear right now. Speaking as highly about Jesus as he possibly can. In fact, we're stopping there, but there's two more things that he says about him. That's seven in total, rapid-fire things that are said concerning the Son in verses 2 and in 3. The first one, and I'm just going to go through the first five, and we'll see the sixth and seventh in verse uh, in the rest of verse 3, which we'll look at in, the, in a few moments. But what we see is, number one, he says that he is the heir of all things. This is, uh, in, in English, it makes sense to say that he's the heir of all things. He's the king of kings. Of course, he would be the heir of all things. But in Greek, this is an allusion, a a A-L-L, illusion. Sort of a way that he's he's pointing to an image in their culture. An heir was invested in all things, had an heir had a full authority to do business on behalf of the Father. If there was an heir to the Father's throne, then he had all the responsibilities and all the, the I guess the avenues and the jurisdiction to handle affairs on behalf of the Father. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is like that. Jesus says everything is entitled to everything that the Father is entitled to that God's entitled to. It's a a very weighty statement for Jesus to have. The heir of all things had full authority to do business on behalf of his father. It also says right after that, through whom he also created the world. We see this in a couple other passages. John 1, 3, all things were made through him. That means he created them, right? Were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and don't miss that last part, and for him. Jesus wasn't just Present in creation. We think of that word Trinity, right? This this eternal pre-existence of God as Father, and Son, as Holy Spirit. And we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, right? In Genesis chapter 1, we see the Father commanding, Let there be, and there simply was. But here we see an amazing clarifying statement that while this Father, the Father spoke the will of creation, who accomplished it? The Son. The Son accomplished the will of the Father. Well, yeah, the Father saying, This is the next thing that will be. The Son says, You got it. And there it is. This same Jesus. This same Jesus. Jesus accomplished creation. Later on, down there in verse 3, it says, and we're going to come back to the first two things about the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. But then it says, which sort of is attached to what we just said about Jesus creating, it says, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, upholds the universe all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1 17 says, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. If you are the creator, you are the owner. And if you are the owner, you have authority over the creation. We even know this in our context with intellectual property laws, right? If you are the owner of a thing, you have ultimate authority over that thing, and no one can do something with your thing unless you give them permission to do it. This is what Jesus has. As the creator of all things, he has ownership of all things. And as having ownership of all things, he has authority over all things. That's why in Matthew 28, 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All what? Authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen, the ant doesn't bite. The bird doesn't chirp. The next wave doesn't crash. The next sunrise doesn't come. You don't take your next breath without the permission of the one holding all things together. He's great, he's just great. It also says in verse three that he's the radiance of the glory of God. Then it says the exact imprint of his nature, radiance of the glory of God. Listen, when you go outside and the sun is beating down and it's hot out, by the way, we're nearing the end, aren't we, of the summer and it feels great. I think the low on Tuesday night is like 59, Oh, right? I can't, can't wait, it's exciting, and football's in the air, this is a beautiful time. God's mercies, right? Listen, when we talk about the radiance of the glory of God, when you go outside, the sun is, is beating down, and it's hot out, you know what you don't do? You don't walk out your door and be like, man, it's hot. Who's got a heater around here? Who's, who's got the heat on? You don't, you don't do that, right? What do you do? You say, man, the sun is beating down. You know why? Because it's unmistakable. There's no other possible place that that kind of heat can come from. You know the signature of the sun, do you not? You don't look around and say, man, what is that? somebody have something going You look up and you say, it is hot outside today because you know the signature of that sun. You've never touched the sun. You can't even really fix your eyes on the sun without going blind. But you know it's heat. You know the radiance of our sun. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He says, you know the source is self-evident, unmistakable. It can only be of one origin. So it is with the Son of Man. So it is with Jesus. What the outdoor heat is to the sun, Jesus' visible manifestation is to the invisible God. Unmistakable, self-evident, there can only be one origin. Man, I can't wait to see him. It says he's the exact imprint of his nature. The word for imprint is not just an impression, it's a It's a mold okay? This is the word that's being used here. It's like a a mold. They would use it as like a casting. The word would be a casting to use to stamp on coins, and so uh, if you want all coins to look the same, you have to create an impression, a mold, and say, if we stamp all these hot pieces of metal with this mold, it'll turn out the same way every time. That's the exact imprint. Whenever you go to the orthodontist, they may take an imprint of your teeth, so it's as, it's as if they have your teeth with them, right? They can stay in your mouth, and yet they've got this thing. By the way, the first time I ever did that, I have a terrible gag reflex. I was, <laughs> but that's the it does. It creates a perfect mold, and so they can take that with them and say, we know exactly what these teeth look like. We can create this perfect structure because we have it, a perfect imprint. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus isn't just part of God. He's not just a kind of a a representation listen we have you may be the, a pretty accurate imprint of your father or of your mother but no one on this earth is the exact imprint of their parents no one we can look pretty close we cannot look exactly Jesus is the exact imprint of the father, of the God which means that when we have Jesus we have God you know what I'm say he's kind of like no he is the exact imprint of his nature When you've seen or heard or read Jesus, you have seen or heard or read God. Not just a symbol, not just a lesser manifestation of him. And I think that this is a really hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. In our minds, I think we put, of the Trinity, I think we put the Father in an elite class, right? We put him in an elite, special place, and we say, well, you know, the Son is, he's sort of a step down maybe. The Spirit is maybe a step further down. That's just not true. That's not true. They're equal in essence, equal in nature. They are all equally one, God. I don't ex- understand that, but that's the reality. He, in essence, he is, he is God, his exact imprint, different in role or responsibility, same in nature. The Father isn't a more elite kind of godness than the Son. The Spirit isn't a lesser form of godness than the Father. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him, that's Jesus once again, listen, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's stunning, stunning that Jesus, check this out, that Jesus can simultaneously welcome children, dirty kids, to his lap while also commanding the seas as conquering king And demand that every name, his name, that every knee, whether it be the knee of a beggar or the knee of a president, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At the same time, he can be a gentle, loving God man, he can be a reigning, conquering God man. It's great. And as such, it's important to understand this that Jesus isn't, he isn't your co pilot. He is your Lord. He isn't your casual pal. He's your king. And he is due an amazing measure of honor and reverence and worship. And yet, your king doesn't seek to dominate you with a heavy fist. He seeks to love you with a warm embrace. In your straying, he disciplines, not harms, not punishes, he disciplines. In your weakness, he empowers. In your sickness, he heals. In your brokenness, he restores. In your doubt, he proves faithful. In your anxiety, he gives rest. In your sin, he forgives, and in your debt, He paid it all. Praise be to God that we don't just have a co-pilot or even just a friend in Jesus, but far more, we have a brother and a king. And in this world, in the war for power, in this godless world, that war will end with all of those powers bending the knee to the greater the king. He's a great prophet, the greatest of voices. He's a great king, the greatest of powers. And finally, he's a great priest, the greatest of offerings. The greatest of offerings. When you hear that word priest, you may think of Catholicism, you may think of the guys that wear the black shirt with the little white piece right here, which I never really understood how that works. I don't know. But you may think of that, that's really not a good thing to have in mind when we talk about the priesthood in our Bibles. A priest is just another way of saying a go-between. It's an intercessor. You have two parties, a priest comes between them. That's why they have Catholic confessional because they go in this confessional booth and you have this holy man that exists. You, you bring the confession to the holy man, the holy man brings the confession to God. That's, that's not biblical, because what we see in Jesus is that he calls himself the great high priest, which means he's the great intercessor, the great go-between, that you have access to the Father, not because of Caleb Hughes or because of some other in-between. You have access to the Father in your bedroom, in your car, because of the great priest of Jesus. So when we talk about the priesthood, we're thinking of go-between, not holy man, but, but go-between. And as we look at the person of Jesus, we see the greatest of go-betweens. We will see so much in this book pertaining to sacrifices and priests, So I won't get bogged down here with this introduction, but I want to to read the rest of verse 3 and make a quick observation. Look at verse 3. Radiance of the glory of God, exact imprint of his nature, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You may have noticed this, maybe not, we just read the words and we just keep going. But there's a pretty quick whiplash from the end of this these high and mighty statements about Jesus, radiance of the glory of God, exact imprint of his nature, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the of the on high. This is sort of a, a very sudden change of direction this word purification has brought in. By the way, when we talk about the gospel, the word purification is probably not one that we often use to describe the good news of the gospel. We don't say, oh, what is the gospel? Oh, it's the great work of purification. That's just not a word that we usually use, right? We made things like, uh, words like he paid the price. He paid it all. He's the ransom, as we read a minute ago. He, he saved me. asked Jesus in the heart to save me from my sins. We may use the word rescue, but remember the audience, okay? Remember the audience. And the word purification for them makes a whole lot of sense. They well knew, and they knew well, how important it was to be made pure, to be purified. You see, God is holy. He is without sin, meaning he is purified pure. Man is unholy. Man is with sin, meaning we are naturally left to ourselves impure. And so to approach God, the holy, we cannot do so unless something changes. We cannot, as the unholy, approach the holy and him still remain holy. We must be made pure. We must be made clean. And this is very common to the Hebrew tongue because they would understand that God gave them a system to make sure that they could approach God and be made clean. Even before Jesus had suffered on the cross, they had a system in place that said, okay, you can come on. You can come to the temple. A few references. Exodus 19.10 says, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today. I mean, set them apart today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. They had to do that to be made ceremonially pure. Exodus 29, 4, you shall bring Aaron, and it's one of the priests, and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting where God would dwell, and wash them with water. They had to be made pure if they were going to come into the presence of the holy. We see this even in the New Testament, and by the way, we could talk about a million examples from the Old Testament, but I'm going to leave you at two. Luke 22 in the New Testament says, And when the time came for them, that's Mary and Joseph, came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him, dedicate him to the Lord. They were there for the rites of purification because they knew how important it was. If they're going to approach God, they had to be declared pure. Even at the wedding at Cana, remember the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine? You know where he got the water? Purification jars that they were using for the religious rites of being made clean so that they could be clean worshipers. They didn't just wash their hands so they wouldn't get sick. They washed their hands so that they could be accepted. Deeply ingrained into the culture of the Hebrews was the need to be made pure before a holy God. And listen, church, that's a problem for sinners like you and me. That's a problem for us. Naturally coming into this world, we can't approach God. And if you want heaven, if you want eternity and glory, that is bad news, not good news. It's a huge theme in this book. Sacrifices over and over again, ceremonial purity, laws and laws and laws. But here's the difference. Here's the greater. Is that we no longer bring sacrifices seeking ceremonial purity and access to the Holy Because the ultimate sacrifice has been provided. Because ceremonial purity has been granted. Because access to the holy is ours forevermore. In Christ alone, our hope is found. That's it. Jesus has been for us the perfect act of purification. That's what it says here. In verse 3, after making purification for sins, after doing the act of gospel good news, saving those who were standing condemned. After Jesus did that, it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'll, you sometimes if you watch a movie, uh, like a medieval times movies, or I, I, w- I recently watched Lord of the Rings. I know I talk about that a lot. It just can't help it. It's just so beautiful. Um, but I recently watched The Lord of the Rings and there's a scene when there's a king who's sitting on his throne and these guys stroll into the court where the king is and there's a guy that goes out and meets them and says, what kind of business are you trying to do with the king? Well, what, well, who, what gives you the right to come and approach him? And this guy, is, he's an in-between. He says, if you want to go to him, you got you to talk to me first. I'm the intercessor. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus sits at the right hand of the father. He sits at the right hand of the majesty. And when you enter the courtyard, the son goes out and says, Father, this one's okay. He's in me. Praise God for that. Man, praise God for that. That you don't enter the court of our king on your merit, but on the merit of the son of God, the Christ who has paid the ransom that you may have access to the holy. The intercept, the, great, the gatekeeper, if you will. It's Romans eight thirty four. man, write this one down. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? It's like that verse was written to be in this book, is it not? He's interceding for us. Who stands to condemn? No one. Can never pluck you from his hand. We just got done singing that. One more thing. It says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, after making purification. Priests, they did not sit down after making purification because they weren't done yet. We're going to look at this in chapter 10 much later. But it says that the priests, the Jewish priests, they stand up every day and they go to work. They got sacrifices to do. And Jesus is a different kind of priest. While the other priests, they stand up and they got to go make the sacrifice. They got to go to work. They got to go to work. They got to go to work. You know what Jesus said when he paid the price? It is Finished, and he took a seat. Because your sacrifice is not one that every day has to be paid. You don't have to bring an offering. You don't have to make yourself right with God. Jesus said, it is accomplished, and he took a seat because of this. Paid in full. And yet, some of us get up every day, and we go out there and we try to earn it. You stand and you go out there and say can I go and be good enough can I go and get my life in order can you just please hear me say something if that's you today if you're just thinking I can get my life together clean my act up and then things can turn around it cannot happen greater men and women than you have tried Jesus has paid the price that you could never pay, and he does not call you to some high and mighty way of life so that you could achieve approachability. He has paid it all and taken a seat, and what he wants from you is to lay hold of the sacrifice and say, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. In the mess of this world, it is well with my soul. There is no offering that you could offer that would gain you more love, more acceptance. And guys, I think, and I was really thinking with this message, it's so introductory and it's so meaty and it's so doctrinal heavy. Where do we arrive at the end of the day taking something home and saying, this is what I latch on to today? And I think that this is it. So please give me your heart. Your life is so busy. Your mind is so full. Your heart is so pulled. Your eyes are so distracted. You have a computer in your pocket that gets your affection more than God's word does. The screens are our slave masters. And even the good things, your kids, they dominate your affections. Your parents are the ultimate moral law, rule of your life. Your workplace, is the reason that you get up in the morning. And intellectually, we would say, well, no, no, that's not true. I know, I'm not talking about what you know. I'm talking about what you believe. I'm talking about what you live. I don't care what you know. I'm talking about what you make clear to the Father every day with every thought and decision and affection you have. What's the truth? And while we are pulled to and fro, and all those things are important in your life, don't get me wrong, but listen, there is something greater that you are to do with your life than wake up, go to work, get the kids fed, feel miserable at the end of the day because you haven't been religious enough, go to bed and wake up and do it all again the next day. That is a worthless existence, and God has created you for so much greater. And the greater is by placing your trust, not in your ability to earn it, but trust in the fact that Jesus has earned it and wake up each day not saying, I have to go and do this, and this is demanding me. You can go and say, nope, the first and foremost, the funnel, the filter through which I'm going to see all other things today is I'm a child of God, and I want to honor him in my workplace, in my parenthood, in my reading habits, in my, what I see with my eyes, my screen time, my affections, the way that I speak, the way that I think, in all things. Is Jesus greater? Is he the greatest influence? Or is he just the add-on tag that we put at the end of the day and say I didn't quite measure up. Good thing there's grace. That is a miserable way to live. And I'm telling you that God created you for something greater. And it's not the misery of moralism. It's the liberation of belonging to a king that will never remove you from his favor in a world that can never pluck you from his hand. And if you've never told him that you want to be his and given your life to him let today be the day